0: Hello and welcome uh, today. I'm going to invite you to go on a journey with me now as we kind of quickly, once again, review the five covenant expectations that we've covered so far in this series. For those of you who may be brand new, uh, we're in a series called Meaningful Membership, and we're talking about some of the covenant uh, expectations that uh, we have at Grace When it comes to membership, but much more important than that is that these are principles, these are positive, transforming practices that God expects of all of his followers, whoever they are, wherever they are, and whatever local church uh, they may belong to. The first one we looked at is like this, I will love, honor, and obey Jesus Christ above all else in my life. Understanding that my life is my ministry, I will seek to represent Jesus well at all times. This is a statement about lordship. We, we're looking for healthy followers of Jesus who can really say that with a, a straight face and really live it out with integrity as the Spirit enables. Secondly, we talked about prayer. I will learn and practice the disciplines of private and corporate prayer. Jesus had a deep and profound prayer life. If we're growing and becoming more like him, certainly that's going to be something that we're committed to pursuing. Third is Scripture. It has a central place in every healthy Christian's life. And so we just declare it. Look, I'll become a consistent student of the Scriptures. No holding back. The Word of God is going to be my anchor. It's going to be my guide. It's going to be where I learn. Uh, how God wants me to believe and how he wants me to behave. And then we talked about corporate worship and fellowship. We said, whenever I'm in the Capital District, look, I'm going to regularly participate in worship, celebration, and fellowship with a corporate body of believers called Grace Fellowship. And then last week, we talked about this commitment. I will tithe at least 10% of my income to the Lord's work we unpack the idea of how people who are becoming like Jesus, since he declared that it's more blessed to give than to receive, that was his value. And obviously, if we're truly serious about that first declaration, that he's really our Lord, then we're going to be taking on his values, and we're going to be growing in generosity ourselves. If you practice these disciplines out of a heart of love for Jesus, and you never become a covenant member at Grace, I'm ecstatic because these are the disciplines that God has used for centuries now. For the deepest, most profound women and men of God, they all had these kinds of practices in their lives, and still today it's true. So they're not only taught in the Bible, they've been proven by experience. But if you practice these disciplines out of a heart of love, For Christ, and that always needs to be our primary motive, and you choose to become a covenant member, I'm doubly ecstatic because I think what God is doing at Grace is amazing, and I love it when people get intentional and jump in with both feet and say, truly, this is my team. This is Super Bowl Sunday, and some of you have a team your team may not be playing in the Super Bowl, but you're committed to your team if you're a a faithful follower of that team. Well, in a much more profound way, we need to have a local church team that we're committed to. And if God is stirring that in you, I'm gonna invite you to a class. It, It happens next weekend. It happens Sunday afternoon, February the 12th. It's gonna be at Half Moon's campus And uh, we'd really like to know you're coming so we can not only have all the helpers we need, but all the materials we need and all the refreshments we need. So please sign up online or let us know in the lobby where you worship, whatever your campus may be, just let us know that you would like to come to that class. I'd really love to see you there. But today, as we kind of near the end now, and next weekend it will be the final sermon in this particular series on meaningful membership but today we come to statement number six here's what it says i will build meaningful relationships that lead to spiritual growth as we unpack this one today i simply want to ask you uh, to kind of do an inventory of your life how are you doing relationally because i'll tell you one thing i've learned in my own journey relationships are the most precious thing on this journey called life and they have been the source of my greatest joy but if you've been on the journey long you probably also know the flip side of where I'm going with this while relationships can be so precious they are also a source of tremendous challenge and often even pain and so it's complex And today, as we kind of unpack this idea, I want to tell you what we have in mind when we say, I'm going to explore, I'm going to build, I'm going to go after meaningful relationships. I'm going to give you three suggestions in in the message of the kinds of relationships that God can really use in your life. Scott Peck made this statement. He said, we can never be completely whole in and of ourselves. We're inevitably social creatures who desperately need each other, not merely for company, but for any meaning to our lives whatsoever. I think that Scott Peck is on to something there when he points out that we were made for community. If you study the Old Testament carefully, I think you'll get that idea all the way from the very beginning where God said it's not good for the man to be alone, and so he made a companion. There was this powerful, powerful move on God's part that, that living a lone ranger existence is not what I have in mind for you. Whether it's a spouse, whether it's close friends that you share life with, family, neighbors, coworkers, dear friends, it's, you were not made to do this journey alone. The writer of Ecclesiastes says two are better than one, for they have a good return for their labor. The Bible points out the importance and the profundity of relationships and their impact. Proverbs thirteen twenty: He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. The list goes on and on. We were built for community and we're at our best when we're in meaningful relationships. So I'll ask you again as we do this journey in the message, how are you doing? How are you doing with relationships? When Jesus came along, He reflects the same value in his ministry. He called disciples, and he called them to be in a community. He discipled them that way and taught them. And then even when they did ministry, he sent them out two by two. Again, a powerful statement. Even when it comes to ministry, no Lone Ranger mentality. Relationships are the key. Even the most healthy ministry is done in a team sort of mindset and environment the new testament church is born and rather than them being just a collection of acquaintances that just kind of show up for worship and then just kind of drift out in life and do their own thing that's not the picture we get what we get in the new testament church is a dynamic community in fact i invite you to look at this passage and I I think there's some words that just kind of jump off the page here when we read what the early church in Jerusalem was like. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. That's the word koinonia. It's a powerful word. It's more than tea and crumpets. It's more than coffee and donuts. It's more than just hanging out together. It's a powerful word, that word, a koinonia. That means that you're going deep in life. Again, all about relationships to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together. What a powerful word that is. They were together, not just physically, but they were united in heart and in mind, They had everything in common. Wow. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day, think of that. They didn't meet like this once a week at first. <laughs> they did it every day. They continued to meet together in the temple courts. That, the temple courts means a place called Solomon's Colonnade. That's where they came together, over 3,000 of them. And they were a growing group okay and there was room there for all of them they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts they they didn't just come together in big groups they came together in small ones praising god and enjoying the favor of all the people and the lord added to their number daily those who were being saved no doubt about it you could just write the word togetherness community meaningful relationship, you could just write those words over that whole description. Now, let me grab your heart for just a moment. Whoever you are, wherever you are on life's journey, let me tell you what I know about you. One of these days, if you're not there right now, one of these days, you're going to hit a storm. And the question that bugs me, that's been bothering me all week as I've prayed into this message is, here's what I want to ask you. One day when you hit those tough times and you're getting stretched and you're getting buffeted about by the waves and the winds of life, here's my question, where are you going to turn? It's then that meaningful relationships will make all the difference in the world. And that's ideally what the church ought to be. I believe, I believe that people are hungry for those kinds of relationships. Now, I've already kind of mentioned it here, but I want to point out to you something about that description that I think is very important. There were two groups there. We looked at verse 46 where it said, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Please don't miss the two significant environments that they hung out in. They had a big one, the temple courts, 3,000 plus, and they had a small one that they focused on, where relationships really ran deep. That is, they met in their homes. Big group and small group. And I'm simply suggesting to you today that the healthy Christian life has both of those environments in it. In fact, we believe that so strongly, we even have put that in our membership covenant. Numbers four and number six. Number four is, is all about corporate worship and fellowship. That's the big group. And number six is all about small groups of people, friendships, groups that meet in homes, triads of people, three friends getting together over coffee and talking about the Lord and helping one another along on the journey of life, especially, especially when we hit storms. The big group at Grace Fellowship is kind of our weekend services. Whatever your campus may be, whether you're in Greenbush or Saratoga, Half Moon, Latham, doesn't matter. When we come together, this is kind of the big group idea. Now, here's what I believe about the big group when we come together. I believe that a big group like this, when we get together on the weekends, a bunch of us, a bunch of us. I believe that this environment happens to be really good for inspiration as we sing together, worship, lift our voices, pray, experience communion, the Lord's Supper, as we hear God's Word taught. I, I believe it's fantastic for inspiration. I, I don't know about you, but I, I literally get inspired. There are sometimes I literally feel goosebumps, and I feel, God, you are so good to us. You are up to something. Look at the wonderful people in this church, and and it also, I think, is a pretty good environment for information most of the time, because it's it's an environment where we can focus in on God's Word, and we can can learn things together. I love the big group environment, but can I tell you something? If that's all you're getting, I'm going to be bold, I'm going to make a guess here that your spiritual life is a bit anemic. I'm not dissing big groups. I love them. They're very inspirational, wonderful place to learn. But if you're not getting small groups, I think you're missing out a big chunk of what God had intended for you. If you're not going deeper with a few people, I'm afraid that you're missing the spiritual intimacy and the impactful influence that God wants to bring in your life. I'm going to make a bold statement here. If you're asking me which of these is the most important as far as deep, lasting life change, here's what I believe, I'll take a small group over the big group any day of the week. If you're talking about deep, lasting life change that that is fruit that remains in a person's life, I'll take the intimacy and the influence of the small group over the big group any day of the week. meaningful relationships are important so with all of that as a foundation as you think about those environments and as you keep on doing the inventory in your own life and and kind of ponder how am i doing with relationships i quickly want to mention three relationships that you know in my ideal pastor's world and i know i can't get what i want but in my ideal pastor's world I wish that every person who calls Grace Fellowship their home had these three relationships going on at all times. Oh, I know, there might be some weeks in there where you don't, maybe a few months, maybe brief seasons where all three, but I wish that every person at Grace had these three relationships happening in their life. Here they are. Three important relationships. Number one, would be that everyone needs a Paul, a mentor-type person in his or her life. Now, I've got Paul there in quotes. So what is the prototype for that in Scripture? What is that Paul-type person? That woman or man that is a mentor to you. Well, this is based on the relationship in Scripture between Paul the Apostle and his young protege, Timothy, who eventually became a pastor in the city of Ephesus. Paul had helped lead uh, Timothy to Christ. He mentions that in 2 Timothy chapter 1, where he says that from <coughs> infancy he's known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. We have every reason to believe that from very early on, Paul in Timothy's life was a seminal and transformational figure. But the Paul-Timothy relationship in Scripture is not the only one that shows this. You have the mentoring relationship of Moses with Joshua. You have Naomi mentoring Ruth. You have the prophet Elijah mentoring the prophet Elisha, And later in the New Testament, you have Elizabeth mentoring the younger Mary. Do you have a mentor in your life? This is someone who is not a competitor with you. They have no desire to compete with you. They want to encourage you. They want to cheerlead you through life. They want to build you up, help teach you, train you, and open doors of opportunity when i think of mentors one of the most amazing mentors in my life and i've had many through the years was a figure you've heard me mention him probably numerous times dr lewis drummond he was the author of over 20 books Uh, he through his life was president of spurgeon's college president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, Billy Graham professor of evangelism at Southern Seminary in Louisville, and he was the mentor as I earned my doctoral degree. He was the one who was my academic advisor for that. He spent hours and hours with me, not just on academics, but on personal things in the spiritual walk. Oh, I respected him so much. He passed away in 2004. But Debbie hears me quote him all the time. Not only did he train me, but he put his reputation on the line for me. When Billy Graham, he was a close friend of Billy Graham, called him up one day asking for someone, some young man that could come and join the team, he was courageous enough to put his reputation on the line and give that opportunity for me. He opened a door that totally changed the trajectory of my life. That's the kind of things that a mentor does. I thank God for the mentors in my life. Later on, a man with the Billy Graham team named Charlie Riggs had a profound impact. Listen, a good mentor is your greatest cheerleader. But he or she is also the kind of person who can look you straight in the eyes and tell you hard things and challenge you and confront you in love and help you reach your full potential for God. Hebrews 13, 7 says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. One of the greatest suggestions I could give to you as a Christian, especially if you're kind of new to this and maybe you're a beginner in Christ, would be this. Find someone that you really look up to. Honestly, a woman or man, someone that you just respect. You go, wow, there's so many things about their life that I would like to emulate, copy, mimic is the Greek word, mimicros. And here's what Paul said to the Corinthians, follow my example, that's the word for mimic there in Greek, as I follow the example of Jesus Christ. say, How does that mentoring take place? Is it a real formal thing? Do I have to put a suit on? Do I have to get a notebook and read a bunch of books? And Do we have to sit down at a strict hour every time, never be late? It could look like that. I hope not. It's probably going to look a lot more informal than that. In fact, Dr. Lewis Drummond never once looked at me and said, Now, I'm your mentor now. Don't forget that. Nor did I even probably use those terms back when he was my mentor. But both of us knew that he was pouring into my life and that I was greatly benefiting from all of the mentoring that he was providing. It may be you play on the same ball team together. It may be that you work closely together and it never becomes this formal thing. It it may be that you're neighbors. It may be that you're just friends and you just eat lunch together occasionally. But the truth is there's mentoring going on. Make certain that you choose someone whose life is hopefully Christ-centered, honorable, one of integrity and worth emulating. Peter Marshall was a great preacher of years gone by. And one time a member of his church was asked to describe Pastor Peter Marshall. And this is what the member said. He seems to know Christ and he helps me know him better. That's what a mentor does. Someone who knows Christ and someone who helps you know Christ Better. But that leads me to a second relationship I want to quickly mention. We not only need a Paul-type person in our life, someone who's further down the road, usually older, but it doesn't technically have to be an older person. It's just someone who's maybe a little further along spiritually. But the second person is everyone needs a Barnabas. That is, an encourager. Now, a Barnabas is more of a peer-oriented relationship. It, too, is a very encouraging kind of thing. The person we talk about, we call Barnabas in the Bible, that wasn't originally his name, but he got that name because of how encouraging he was. The word Barnabas means son of encouragement. Acts 4, 36 reads, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas got that nickname, Barnabas, wasn't his real name, because he just typified encouragement in his lifestyle. Always going out of his way, working with others. He was a great team player. You need a Barnabas. An 80-year-old pilot went for his annual physical, only there was a different doctor now. And um, the doctor checked his eyesight and he said, man alive, I can't in good conscience pass you, you're nearly blind. And the 80-year-old man said, but sir, you don't understand, flying, flying airplanes is, is my life. I, I don't know what I would do without it. He said, well, pal, you can't even read the big E on the eye chart, I don't think I can pass you. And then the doctor said, how in the world can you even land a plane anyway? Your eyesight is so bad. He said, well, doc, it's a matter of teamwork, actually. He said, I just push the throttle down, and I watch my co-pilot. I just kind of push the throttle down. The plane keeps descending. I push it down and push it down, and I just keep watching my co-pilot right next to me. And I keep pushing it down. And when the co-pilot turns ghost white and goes, "Ah," then I just pull it up, and we come in for an easy landing. Now, that is teamwork. When you hit that storm that I talked about earlier, where are you going to turn? Who's going to be your team on this flight called life that's going to help you land the plane? You know what I'm so grateful for? My wife, Debbie, is the greatest encourager in my life, but she's also not afraid to challenge me. Just like the Paul, the mentor, the Barnabas in your life should be someone who's very encouraging but also not so wimpy that they can't challenge you at times when appropriate. And I've got so many great Barnabases in my life. It's amazing. I have brothers and sisters in this church who, who just regularly just write me an encouraging note. Listen, good sermon, man. I, I really like the way you handled that tough issue with grace and truth. Or, hey, man, I just, just appreciate this about your leadership. And they just they lift me up as I'm going on this journey, this leadership journey of life. Do you have a Barnabas? See, what breaks my heart is that I know that even as I'm talking right now, some of you are really hurting. You're really in pain because you're, you're sitting there and you've got this knot in your stomach and you know that you desperately need someone like this in your life. But truth be known, right now, you don't really have this person. Ecclesiastes 4 says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Almost 54 years ago now, a woman named Jean Nyditch from Queens, New York, weighed 214 pounds. She was far heavier than she wanted to be. She wanted to lose some weight. She decided to go to the New York City Department of Health, where she was given a diet plan that she tried to follow for a while. But after five months of doing that, she still had over 50 pounds that she wanted to get rid of. So here's what she did. She decided to call five or six other women into a group with her so they could mutually encourage one another. They, They all happened to be people she knew who she knew they all wanted to lose some pounds. And so they decided to come together and the plan was that they would talk about it and they would keep one another accountable and they would share ideas and, and, and kind of spur one another on. Well, on May the 15th, 1963, Weight Watchers was founded. And today, all these years later, it has over a million active members in 27 countries of the world. And although I've never participated or been a part of Weight Watchers, I'm told by some who have that the key to the whole thing is encouragement. Nidich uses this illustration. She says, when she was a young girl, she used to walk through a park near her home in New York. And she said moms would be there talking with with their small children. Their children were playing on the playground, many of them on the swings. And and the moms were sometimes just a bit oblivious as they just kind of shared the latest gossip with one another. And she said, when I saw that, I would go by and I would kind of give those kids a, a push, just a little push on the swing. She said, do you know what happens when you push a child on a swing like that, she said, pretty soon, they're pumping all for themselves with their legs and they're building momentum. All they needed was just a push. She said, that's my role in life. I'm here to give others a push. That's why I started Weight Watchers, she says, and that, what, that's what it's all about. I love that image. Someone in your life, Just at the right time, just when you need it most, just be there to just kind of give you a good, positive push in the right direction. Now, that is a friend indeed. But there's one more relationship that if I as a pastor could just script exactly what I would love to see happen in the church, I'd want everybody to have a mentor. I'd want everyone to have a Barnabas or maybe a bunch of them. in his or her life, and boy, that would be so healthy. But there's one other thing, and without this relationship, this whole thing does not come full circle, and the church cannot, cannot be healthy. And that is that everyone needs a Timothy or a disciple in his or her life. Someone who can, you, you can do for them what. Louis Drummond did for me. Take him or her under your wing. Pour time and energy and encouragement into this young protege. It may be someone who is just exploring faith right now. They really, at this point, don't even know Christ yet. But God is giving you a nudge by his spirit and saying, go talk to them. Go share your faith with them. Go build a relationship with them. Rick Russo is a Christian pastor I know in Colorado, and after attending a seminar in Chicago, he said at the end of the first session, they invited a hotel security chief to come and talk to them. And here's what the hotel security chief said, and I quote, I want to give you some rules so that you'll be able to navigate around the city of Chicago safely. Some of you aren't used to the big city. So the first rule is, when you go outside the hotel, even if you're lost, don't act like it. Act like you know exactly where you're going, even if you're totally lost. Don't stand there on the corner and stare up at the tall buildings. (laughs) It's pretty obvious that you're from out of town. The second rule, he said, is to move quickly and move with confidence, even if you're lost. Just keep heading in the same direction, and at some point, slide into a restaurant and ask for directions. The third rule I want you to be aware of is don't make eye contact with anybody. Don't engage anyone or gets too close to them. And the fourth thing, this is kind of important, when you leave the hotel, take off your name tag. It's kind of a dead giveaway when your name, your big old name tag says Buford from Utah. That's a dead giveaway right there. Pretty good rules, pretty good rules really for navigating a big city. Can I tell you what I've learned in the local church? There are people who are exploring faith. There are people who are trying to figure out life and they follow all of those rules in church. They don't look anybody in the eye. They walk around confidently even if they don't have a clue what's going on or where they're going. They may be lost, but boy, they don't act like it. And they definitely won't wear a name tag, don't want anybody to get too close or know who they really are. Those are the people, many times, many times, that God has called us to build relationships with. Let me tell you what I know about relationships based on many years now in the local church. This is a diagram that you've seen and will see various iterations of it, but the idea is the same. This talks about our, this is our move matrix. This is how we talk about discipleship at Grace. And we talk about going from exploring Christ, that's when you're not yet a true follower, but you're just kind of exploring this and trying to figure it out. You, you actually come to faith in Christ, repent of your sin, trust in what Jesus did for you at the cross, in his atoning death and resurrection, and you yield your, heart, your life to him, and you're a new beginner now in Christ. And then as you grow, you get close to Christ. As you move along this journey. And then finally, of course, the goal is to become a fully Christ-centered person. Now, here's what I don't want you to miss. No matter where you are today on that, and there's a sense in which only you can really know where you are. Some people can kind of fake it pretty well in here. But no matter where you are, here's what we've discovered and what we keep on discovering. The evidence is overwhelming that one of, one of the most catalytic things God uses to move us from one place to the other is a relationship. A relationship. Let me tell you one of the things that proved that to me years ago. When I worked with the Graham team, I would go into cities and speak to classes constantly and have four to five classes a week of people, classes of sometimes uh, over a thousand people, sometimes as small as a couple of hundred people. But I did one thing in every class I taught. Here's what I did. I did a survey and I asked people to give a show of hands that I, I, I asked them to take very seriously. And I asked them, how did you come to faith in Christ? And I'd give them these options. How many of you came to Christ because someone just put a track, a little gospel track under your windshield or handed it to you in the street? And occasionally there'd be a hand go up. How many of you came to Christ because some vigorous evangelist stopped you on the street and grabbed you by the collar and said, turn or burn, buddy? Which is it going to be? Usually there was no one, but amazingly, occasionally one or two would lift their hand and say, yeah, somebody just somebody just stopped me in my tracks and got my attention. How many of you came to Christ through a radio? preacher there might be a few hands a television preacher usually there was no one but occasionally there'd be a hand or two and I kept going on and I'd say how many of you came to Christ through a good Christian book like C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity you read it and boy it moved you or you read Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton or More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell or some kind of book and usually there'd be a few hands in a class of a thousand and then i'd kind of pause and go wow are you guys really christians am i in the right place and they'd laugh and then i would say all right how many of you came to christ because a family member friend co-worker teammate modeled it for you and loved you enough to share christ with you and build a relationship with you right where you were Friends, I kid you not, it never failed. It was always 80 to 95% of the class came to Christ and the catalyst God used was a relationship, a friendship that was meaningful. And most of those people, sometimes I would stop them and ask them, can you name that person? Can you name that one or two people, if there were more than one, that God used in your life in a catalytic way to help lead you to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And of course, almost always, they could name who the person was. Do you have a Timothy in your life? Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, and the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified To teach others so how are you doing with relationships I don't know where you are on this journey where you would whether you would call yourself a person blessed with many friendships and by the way I believe if you've got one or two or three really good friends you are a rich person indeed but can I tell you finally as I wrap up what I know about relationships people will let you down. Did I just disillusion you? (laughs) I hope not. I hope you are wise enough to know that people, no matter how good, no matter how honorable or wise they are, are going to let you down. I've let my friends down, and they've let me down. It's just part of being human. But I want you to understand, there is one friend who will never let you down, This isn't just preacher talk. This is the truth. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. He's the one you can always count on no matter what storms you encounter in life. And above all, no matter how profound and meaningful your human friendships, I pray that you would have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for calling us into community, and that that makes all the difference, especially when we're kind of shaken up by the storms. Most of all, may we know you as our friend, as our Lord, as our Savior. It blows our mind that you said to your disciples, I call you friends. Wow. Thank you that we could have that kind of relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.